we on? Are we on? Is it happening? It's happening. Yay, we're here. We're on. We're broadcasting live. How are you guys doing? Beautiful day. Been a little bit of nice low humidity for the day. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Probably not too long. But I'll take it while I can get it. Just went for a walk in the park. It was very nice. Or for an old stroll. Appreciate the work of good old Calvert Vox and his buddy Frederick Law Olmsted. Did a good job. Is this Barry LaCroix? Yes. I generally prefer uh, uh, black cherry. I think that's the goat seltzer flavor. That's number one, but a lot of the time it's not in my bodega or my kitchen or my, my grocery store, so I get what's available. Uh, yes. I would say top three are black cherry, watermelon, and berry. Polar is very good. That's usually what I get, but they didn't have any hard cherry, and I really like that one. Not a fan of the, uh, the of uh, grapefruit. So, I wanted to start today talking about something that popped up in the old discourse. Once again, I apologize for referencing the internet. It's it's a, it's tough, but at the same time, trying to talk about things and. Given my limited little space, there's very little I could report on in my life uh, that's very relevant. So I kind of have to stay at that level for now. I don't think forever, but right now I'm feeling still kind of, you know, we're still in a loose quarantine, but in one that sees me not really interacting that much with the world, certainly in a political sense. But damn it, there's always something to talk about on that internet. And I like to think that for the most part, I just use it as an entryway to talk about something that's more uh, abstract and applicable beyond that narrow aperture. So there was an article in Jacobin about how the U.S. has incredibly uh, draconian open container laws, and it's stupid, and people should be able to drink in public like adults, like we do in most other countries. And to me, that seems like very, very obvious, very self-evident thing. I mean, and if you wanted to be super woke about it, if you wanted to be 1619 Project about it, you could talk about how, wow, why does America have such more stringent uh, open container laws than, say, Europe? It's because they're another way to police minority communities. And there's something to that. And yet, there was a backlash to that article about people getting mad and saying, look at these uh, bourgeois gentrifiers. Uh, uh, just complaining because they want to be pretend like they're in Berlin and be able to drink outside. Ooh, fucking uh, Fauntleroy's. Why should I care? Fuck that. Have the cops tase them so that I don't have to see their frat antics. Now, part of that, now, that's a baffling, that's a baffling re response. And once again, hate to talk about the internet, but I think that the, the nature of that response, which seems on its face to be so shocking, reveals a lot of things, not just about the dynamic online, but about the dynamic of the American left in general. Uh, and first of all, you've got the fact that for some people, it is they hate Jacobin because they have an esoteric problem with it as a project and they're going to hate everything and they just pull something out of a hat. So that's one group. You don't really have to consider them too much. Another group are people on the left for whom being on the left means it's if I'm on the left and I have a strident enough voice, and certainly if I press the identity politics buttons in the right direction, people have to talk to me. People have to acknowledge me. People have to be my friend. And that's a big thing on the left, is a lot of the, a lot of the discourse, especially about interpersonal stuff within organizations, DSA for example, boils down to it's problematic or it's reactionary to not be my friend. And for those people, especially the ones who have been so successful at having friends, Seeing people talk about things like public drinking gets them furious because it reminds them of all the fun they don't have. And, and they want to remind people, no, this is the left. This is where you listen to me because it's the only social situation where anyone would listen to me by their own volition because they've convinced themselves that I have something to say. 
but in reality, I am just a wildly unpleasant person to be around and has decided that that's actually the world's fault. And exert that by getting angry at anyone who would raise an issue that would only apply to people who uh, are, you know, aren't neurodegenerative, you know, problematic, uh, you know, uh, having enough spoons, having the spoons to drink. Like some people don't have the spoons to drink and you're ignoring all of us spoonless people, which that's just personal invective. This is just personality disorder described this, this, uh, masked as politics. And then there's this last group, which I think is kind of the most interesting. And that is people who, they read that and they don't think about the obvious person that this is, uh, this is referring to in terms of, you know, talking about real, um, talking about real social oppression, to talk about this as something that makes society less free, less uh, just, something that makes it harder to be a minority, harder to be poor in this country. Uh, but that's not who they think of when they read that. They immediately think of the people who write it, wrote it and the people who are reading it. And the people who wrote it and the people who are reading it are all members of that same downwardly mobile urban PMC that is, that is generally, in my opinion, the constitutive body of the self-conscious left in America. Not necessarily everyone who has leftist beliefs, but I'm talking about the self-identified, identified left. And so they read that and think, oh, you fucking, you Jacobin fucking brochalists, uh, you just want to be able to have a beer, beer kegger in front of your uh, gentrifying ass brownstone that you, your parents bought you. Fuck you. And the thing is, is that seems insane. Hey, who are you talking? We're talking about the real people who are suffer from this are mostly working class urban minorities. But since that's not who, that's not who wrote it, and that's not who's reading it, including the people who are bad, the people who hated the article. None of them are. They're all the same group. They're all the same group. And they end up fighting a battle. I mean, it's, not tr it's trivial, but like, it creates battle lines that are generated by just this stew of uh, personal, personality-based uh, resentments. And that's why politics is a dead letter. Because you have a perfectly good policy that could be something that could unite people in, across urban neighborhoods, from the gentrified areas to the, to the not, yet, not yet to be, uh, against police authority in their lives. But people got to get self-conscious about the cultural implications of it because only one group is being talked about, and that creates anxiety. Everyone knows that there's no like, diversity in this movement, that it doesn't include basically any poor people of any kind, very few poor uh, minorities, almost no poor white people. And once again, when I'm talking about the self-consciously identified left, which, as I'm saying, is also mostly an online phenomenon. And so this thing just spins off on its own with no connection that would ground it and make this question irrelevant to anybody who even thought about it for a second. Because all that personal shit would just dissolve in the reality. But there is no reality because this is not a genuine working class emanation. And... I understand, actually, why people want to fight on the cultural ground. Not just because it's something they can do, but, you know, Gramsci had a real, real meaningful contribution to Marxism when he noted the, the function of hegemony in, in the culture, because there's a certain sterility to the base superstructure dynamic, because if it's just that, right, if it's just you've got an economic base that determines the, the presiding cultural values and, and, and ideas of a society that then filter through all institutions. How could anything ever change? Like, even if things get worse, that worseness is going to be diffused and transformed by culture into its opposite, and then society will maintain its structures. And the answer is, what Gramsci identified as counter-hegemony, whereby working-class people create their own dense social network that is essentially resistant to the overall hegemony, and over time can... Uh, can defeat it in, in, the, in the battle for the majority of people's mind space, the, the war of positions, he called it. And that's real. That's a real thing, and that's a real phenomenon, and certainly in like, the post-capitalist West, that's the reality of the terrain of social struggle, considering how few people self-identify as leftists.
but the problem there is that in that analysis, you to look at the culture as is, and specifically the culture of something like, I don't know, the online left, and you see that as, a, as an, an emanation of counter-hegemony. Uh, but it's not. It's not part of a counter-hegemony. It is part of the ruling hegemony. Because it is not a working-class movement. It's not a working-class cultural movement the way that the uh, Social Democrats in Germany built, especially the way that the Communist Party of Italy did after World War II. Like, that was genuine... Those were genuine counter-hegemonic uh, movements because what, the, what Marx theorized to happen, what you saw happen in, in the... In the satanic mill towns of, of uh, post-industrial revolution Europe is that the density and the, and, the social, and the similarity of social conditions and the geographic uh, com, uh, the, the geographic closeness of working class communities meant that there was like as, as society emanated trickled, as, as hegemonic concepts trickled down through social institutions to the working class, counter-hegemonic notions were rising up from the connection between people on the work, in the workplace, which, which beca because they were closer to the ground, have more power, and over time can create institutions and enduring cultural structures that are counter-hegemonic. And that is not what we have right now. Uh, what we have right now is a left that is one specific segment of the broader, you couldn't even call it working class. It's not, it's, it's partial, because the thing is, the job is, in, is, is less significant than the cultural uh, framework because it's self-limiting. What it means is that this is not a ex phenomenon that expresses a counter-hegemonic uh, working class American culture. It represents a very specific uh, subcultural emanation within a broader social media uh, cultural hegemony, not counter-hegemony. Working class culture, on the other hand, is basic, a broad one, is essentially a dead letter because of, the, uh, because of the way that geography and, uh, and the workplace and, and, and labor in America has, has broken up relations turned us from potatoes in the sack to Pringles in a tube. And the challenge is to actually build genuine working class cultural institutions. Uh, and that's very difficult because everyone who is self-consciously in the matrix of opinions and, and actions that form you know, the left are almost inherently broken away from it. And... I mean, this is another one where I don't really know the answer, but I just know that, that the holes we've been, we've been trying to draw water from are fucking dry. I've actually been watching uh, not old SNL episodes, but I've got YouTube on my TV, and sometimes I'll just, for a little bit, put on random old uh, sketches. Not that old, recent ones. Because, uh, you know, I only see them once. The older sketches I sort of have emblazoned in my head from watching them on, S on Comedy Central as a kid a bunch of times. But the more recent ones I watch, because they just go in one ear and out the other, and I've just kind of reappraised them and go, wow. Yeah, no, it's bad. It's bad. It's as bad as it's ever been. Uh... It's the same thing as ever, and yet somehow worse than it's ever been. Isn't that what Felix says about America? And isn't it the most true thing that's ever been said? About everything you could say, this is basically what it's always been quality-wise, and yet somehow worse. And that is SNL. Do I identify as based? Uh, Carbon-based? Nice. I should get that for a t-shirt. I'm going to get, get a t-shirt that says, yes, I'm based, carbon-based, and just do the biggest soy face in human history. Put it all over the internet.
I think I've given my opinions on anarchism in here before, that it's essentially like hyper-liberalism. It's liberalism taken to its most socially radical, or, or like its most, it's, it's liberalism taken to its most radical conclusions, but at the end of those conclusions. And there, that's still just, that's still just the end of liberalism, whereas what you need is something other than liberalism. Yeah, there must be a deeper meaning behind ironic soy facing. I think that's interesting because I have seen, I remember after the right wing guys, after the alt right guys invented soy face and people start doing it ironically, they get really mad. They'd be like, just because you're doing it ironically doesn't mean you're not really one. And you're actually doing it ironically because you know deep down that you're soy. And the thing is, it's like, I mean, it's a, it's a tautology. It's like, they've just said everything I don't like is soy. Well, it's like, well, I don't care if you don't like me. You suck. Sure, I'm soy, whatever. I don't care. Like you, I don't, your values are bad. I, 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 I'm glad that I don't uh, adhere to them. But it's just fun. I got to say, I, I got to give them that. Why aren't I vegan? Give me a break. Give me a time. I'm on a fucking process here. Okay. I've been, I've been a, I've been a hedonic uh, slug my entire life. It's not going to be a 180. I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn on a dime. If I tried, it would break. I'd snap in half like a twig. But I think I'm on a good path. I think I will get there someday. Why is the K-Hive so psycho? Uh, that's a good question. I was thinking about that today because... So Fred's and I were talking about the VP stakes, the Veep stakes, and about how you know, oh, Biden's really—he painted himself into the corner with this black woman thing, and you know, it's probably bad that he doesn't feel like he has more variety. And then somebody said it would be hilarious if he picked Mitt Romney. And the thing is, is that he's not really restrained to pick a black woman because, according to the vast majority of these people, uh who will really care, like, obviously, for most people, VP picks are meaningless. This is really just about, like, shaping narrative and keeping your uh, motiva most motivated volunteer-type people and, like, leading-edge uh, voters uh, excited. Uh, it's not going to matter to the general public, but all these people who say, who, who are now like, he's got to pick a black woman and all that, if he doesn't, they are on record without anything to do because they have said explicitly that they will not abandon him because of the importance of beating Trump, which means that they, he could pick anybody. He could pick Chris Dodd, guy who's basically a clone of him. He could pick Hunter. He could pick Mitt Romney. And what are they going to do about it? What are you going to do? Ah, forget about it. Get out of here. Get your fucking shine box. And I think that's true of most of these people, but it is not true of the K-Hive. I think the K-Hive would actually not only not vote for Biden, but some of them might try to take a shot at him because they are the people who have essentially become identity politics Wahhabists, where they have, they have gathered all of their political meaning, like the, the good and evil and their personal investment in politics, their identity as a political agent, as someone trying to shape their lives and destinies and the future of their fa the families and their species, around a very specific ideological matrix around which, with, with, with brittle to non-existent ideology underlying it, uh, and as such, they're not going to take that's that's the one thing that will make them the thing they I mean they might have to, told everyone else hey suck it up you know this is beating Trump is too important but I think for a small group of them uh, they would actually do some Puma shit if she didn't get it but from the point of view if I'm Biden uh, these are an insignificant number of people uh, and Harris I think honestly would be a bad pick I mean not only I think it'd be funny if he didn't pick her but I also think he could do better like that Karen Bass or something. I honestly now I'm, I'm kind of now of the opinion that like a relatively unknown uh, black female congresswoman would be the best pick because it would be something people could talk about that wasn't Trump or Biden because they're stuck in a thing where you know you want to be able to define yourself you need to have some sort of positive uh, you know shape to your campaign you can't completely rely on your opponent shitting the bed I mean you can mostly do it but and you can try to do it but there are I think people assume there are limits, and I think people are going to act with the assumption that there are limits to that. And so you want to have something positive to talk about your campaign. And, like, if they roll out 
hey, meet this person. And it's somebody who basically nobody had heard about a week ago becoming an overnight celebrity. That's the kind of thing that could actually hold a news cycle or two. You know, I mean, I don't think it will, given how the Cuisinart of, of, of sensory overload we live in, but it could. Certainly more than him picking Kamala Harris. Old news. She ran it. She, boo. It's all, immediately they go to, ooh, what about the time of the debate they, they fought and, and uh, all, the, all that tedious shit? And what about her being a cop? Blah, blah, blah. You don't gain anything. It's just another, it's, this, it's somebody who's already out, who's been in the deck, brought back out. Oh, yeah, we know that. Boo. You got to bring in someone new, someone flashy, somebody to get people going. Get the people moving. And like with Trump being the nominee, with Biden being the avatar of, of, of Wall Street uh, experience, if not competence, since sure people know that his brain's melting, but at least they don't think that he's not, you know, that, that he doesn't know how the, where the fucking bathroom is and that kind of thing, just in term, in, unless he's forgotten. <laughs> so I don't think there's any real danger of people being like, oh, she's... She's not very qualified. I mean, who's president, for Christ's sake? I think it immediately becomes, here's a new person. And so many people can form beliefs around, people they can make memes over, a way to sort of launder this dog shit, dead carcass of a campaign into something animated. So, yeah, fuck it. Karen Bass, go for it. Val Denning, somebody like that. Whoever you think is, like, going to get... Whoever's... Get them in front of a, a focus group, and whoever lights up the dials most, pick. Just something to talk about that isn't Biden, that isn't Biden's man. I mean, my God, you guys saw, I hope everyone saw him today, the best, one of his best moments yet of the campaign, where he had everything in him, everything in it that is bad, everything that is, that is evidence of his manifest mental incompetence in one minute long, uh, Segment. Let me play it right now if anybody hasn't heard it. This is genuinely amazing. Vice President, your opponent in this election, President Trump, has made your mental state a campaign topic. And when asked in June if you've been tested um, for cognitive decline, you've responded that you're constantly tested. In, in constantly. He's got guys are coming at him. He's got to do judo chops. He's got to evade attackers. He's got to do mind combat. Here we go. Why the hell would I take a test? Come on, man. Come on, man. That's like saying you, before you got in this program, you take a test where you're taking cocaine or not. What do you think, huh? Are, are you a junkie? Are you a junkie? To Trump, are you a junkie? Brags about <laughs> and makes your <sighs> an issue for voters. Ah, hell. God damn it. Oh, here well, we go. Well, if he can't figure out the difference between an elephant and a lion... I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Did you watch that? Look, come on, man. I, I, I know you're trying to goad me, but I mean, I'm so forward looking to have. I'm so forward to looking to sit with the president, sit to or stand with or either one. Why would I want to do it? By the way, here it is. This I is my favorite part. Them, you know, it, I, I shouldn't say it. I'm going to say not, something. No, no, never mind. I, I probably shouldn't say. Should it. say it. Anyway, here we go. I am. Uh, I am very willing to let the American public judge my physical and mental fil- my physical as well as my mental fil- fitness <laughs> he botches physical and mental fitness twice in a row like he's a fucking Studebaker you tried to start you couldn't write it better he is funnier than Trump at this point because Trump kind of get it get him in there get, get the new funniest possible thing By, Felix is once again correct he truly is a shaman. He just feels the vibrations. I'm out here trying to piece this shit together with like these spe- stupid specific concepts and, and, and symbolic orders. And he's just like, he's reading the wind. He's like, his, his kneecap starts twitching and he understands the, the direction of the cosmic winds. But yeah, funniest outcome. Because we're in a period of disruption and, and comedy comes from surprise, from the unexpected. And we, we're living in an era of extrapolating and, and compounding uh, 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 shocks to the system. So, of course, it's going to be funny. And now this is who we get to be as president for anywhere from, uh, I'm going to say, uh, 18 to, uh, I think he might make it, I think the over-under on should be, should he make it past the midterms? Although maybe he'll keep living. Maybe he is going to be one of those old guys whose bright lights go out, but he stays alive for, for years. 
God, that'd be a nightmare. But also, in its own horrifying way, way kind of funny. Come on, man. If physical and mental fit, physical and mental fit, fitness. Goddamn beyond everything, Ed Tom. Goddamn beyond everything. Well, I mean, they worship senility because they're senile. The electorate is old people. They want to see themselves represented. Like Trump is them, so is Biden. Just different versions. The ones who are accepting their decline and the ones who are raging against the dying of the light. But it's still the same group. Same old people watch TV and they're picking which type of, which one of these old fucks they relate to more. Someone asked if Nixon in 60, if he'd won, if it would have changed the, uh, it would have prevented the, the, the Southern realignment, uh, the racial realignment uh, and on civil rights. And I got to say, I don't think so. Uh, Nixon wasn't like a, well, certainly wasn't a civil rights, uh, like, firebrand in any way. Uh, the real interesting thing is that uh, the interesting question about civil rights is how to what to, to what to, such a ma to what a massive degree the assassination of J uh, JFK broke a logjam there that might otherwise have not been defeated, and it raises a question of like absent that how do you because the Kennedys had no idea how to deal with those old crackers in Congress who were bottling it up using all the procedural tricks they learned from generations at the Cracker Barrel. Your, your, your Howard Smiths and your Richard Russells, they were eating their fucking lunch. And Johnson had an idea, but they didn't want to hear that fucking dipshit. They hated him. They, they, they had all the Harvard degrees, so they, they knew it was better. And they were just absolutely buffaloed. And it was the assassination of Kennedy that kind of broke the logjam on civil rights. And of course, you wouldn't, I mean, if Nixon's president, you still have the Southerners resisting. I don't know. I don't know how you get out of the logjam. I had a fun idea for a counterfactual history there where Kennedy, Nixon wins, right? And um, when the human miss, when uh, the Bay of Pigs happens, see, the thing with Kennedy was Kennedy was essentially in the dark about, J about the Bay of Pigs. When he came in, they said, we've got an operation to defeat, uh, to go in and knock over Castro easy peasy with, a, with an army. Like we did in Guatemala, it'll be no sweat. And Kennedy basically said, all right, go for it. And the planners created a, uh, a plan that really could only have any chance of working with U.S. military air intervention. It was not going to be feasible for them to actually, I mean, in, in, in the delusion halls of power, some of these guys, some of these guys, maybe even Wisner, I'm not sure, believed, oh, as soon as they show up, the masses will rise up and overthrow Castro. But the more hard-headed realists knew that, that the Cuban, uh, you know, the response was robust enough that without air support to stop the moving in of heavy weapons to repel the invasion, they were not going to make it. Uh, and, but they didn't tell Kennedy that because they didn't want him to say no. They were operating off the better to ask for forgiveness than permission model, thinking that, well, if we start this thing and it goes south, he's going to be pot committed and he's going to say, go for it. Which, of course, that's a bad way to go about planning a thing. Uh, and sure enough, when it came time for the invasion, it was getting repelled. And they say, hey, uh, so we could really could use some air support. And Kennedy said, fuck no. What was air support? I thought this was going to be easy and, and deniable. Uh, I, and, and then he made the, the laudable choice to just cut bait then and there. Of course, some could say that's where his death warrant was signed, depending on your view on it. As I said, I am, at this point, after reading about it a lot, I am agnostic. Uh, it just feels good. I feel I like floating in that that liminal JFK space, it's just like in a jacuzzi of what ifs, and possibilities, and conjectures, without any kind of solidified consensus. Uh, I like just knowing all that stuff and, and just letting it flow around me instead of hardening into pres prepositions.
and suppositions. But Nixon, on the other hand, was the person at the White House who was the point man for the planning for the Bay of Pigs invasion, which had started under Eisenhower. Bay of Pigs was already under... Uh, was already being planned before the election, and Nixon, as VP, was directing it. It's easy to imagine a counterfactual where Nixon's president and is more invested in Bay of Pigs at an operational level and more committed to the concept of it so that if he was in charge when the invasion happens, not only does he authorize airstrikes, they're already baked into the plan because he's he's signed off on the concept or even if not that when they ask him he gives the green light because he's just he believes he has ownership more of it he feels like it's his thing i mean a big part of it with kennedy is, is they just stuffed that in his face and he said what i'm on the hook for something that i didn't even authorize and that's one of the big reasons he didn't want to uh commit too much this was nixon's baby and so what if there's a successful incursion that, you know, gets past the beachhead at the Baja de Cochino and it stalls out? And then the next step is an investment of U.S. Uh, boots on the ground. And instead of Vietnam in the late 60s, you have Cuba in the early 60s. And with a hardening of, social, of a, a social conflict accelerating, uh, in the absence of a civil rights resolution, you have a, a more violent and more uh, chaotic and, dis and, and polarizing, even than in reality, civil rights movement uh, and anti-war movement. I don't know. Just messing around with it a little bit. I have no idea. But the other thing is, is that Nixon was also, you know, a triangulator and he was a pragmatist. So there's a question of, you know, he, would he have been the guy who tamped down Cold War tensions? After all, he was the guy who, I mean, Kennedy ran to his right on China and on, uh, on missiles. But the thing is, I think guys like Kent Nixon kind of view the great power shit, like the stuff between the big guys on a different level than things like knocking over some tin pot dictator. And at that point, remember, Castro had just taken power. He was not this fixture in human society. He was a, an arrivist. Knocking that guy off, I don't think he necessarily would have considered it like terribly, especially in our own backyard, I don't think he necessarily would have considered it a, a huge provocation to the Soviets, just keeping your house in order. But yeah, I always imagine then, like, so Nixon's term is just like this hyper-reactionary turn, and then he has George Wallace as his running mate in 1964. Why some, somebody keeps asking me about The Social Network, and I gotta say, that's a movie that I have very few opinions on. I never really got it. I watched it in the theater at the time it came out, and I thought, okay... And it's never, it's never been a favorite of mine, but I, I, it's got stuff that's okay in it. I don't know. The fixation on it either is either really good or really bad. I don't really get. Someone says Oliver Stone's W is good. I, I have to disagree on that one. That is, a, that is a terrible film in my opinion. It's essentially a bunch of, a bunch of filmed Daily Cost articles from 2004.
I have. I guess I have one question. I guess people ask. People are, someone asked me about the about the Uyghur deal, and I know a lot of people say like oh, the whole thing is an op. It's all like a CIA operation to provoke a new Cold War. And I certainly buy the logic, the the, the political logic anyway of a new Cold War. But as I understand, you know, as I have said, I, I think that the that real conflict between the United States and China is is due to short sightedness and, and uh, just an uh, uh, a, 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 a inability to, to kind of smooth out some of, the, uh, some of the inherent bumps in transitioning to like a globalized supply chain uh, and, and are kind of, from a market perspective, not terribly rational. But in the short term, there's, in both countries, there's, I think, significant political capital to be garnered from an escalating Cold War. The thing I don't get is, at this late date, I mean, who the fuck cares about human rights? I mean, I get, yeah, Iraq war, right? Yeah, like, that was the big liberal intervention, right? Uh, That was the big... uh, That that was saving Iraq and the poor Kurds from 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 poison and stuff. I mean, Trump ran on, fuck the rest of the world, we'll shoot whoever we want. Built, like, everyone's been freaking out about cages on the border for four years. Nothing's been done about them. Why the, who's, who, what vanishingly small percentage of people gives a shit in this country about any, anybody's human rights? Including their own fucking uh, uh, fellow citizens. And I get, oh, it's for, the, it's for the NGO crowd. It's for the NGO crowd. It's for the journalists. I'm sorry, if you still think those people are shaping opinions, I mean, if it is an op, it's, a, it's, it's one of the lowest uh, re- return ops I can imagine. That's all. I don't know. I mean, Trump's on the record. When, when, when Xi explained to him what they were doing with the Uyghurs, he said, that's a great idea. That's what you should be doing. Somebody asked an, in- an interesting question. Somebody said, what about film under communism? Now, obviously, this is an absurd question because, I mean, talk about uh, missing the forest for the trees. You know, we're pretty far away from anything other than galloping disaster in every direction. It's silly to talk about something as pie in the sky as that, but I think it's an interesting idea just because I talk a lot about, you know, how art is warped over time by capitalism. Uh, and what would that look like in its absence? And part of me thinks, I mean, I, so you've got the simple fact that technology is accelerated to such an extent that the ability to like make something, uh, a film specifically, will be democratized, presumably, because the technology to the, the actual capacity, uh, the actual material uh, necessary to, to, the tech, to make uh, to make a movie is distributed. But the thing is, if anybody can make a movie, then wh- which one should I see? And th- like, that's where the market comes in as like the, the creator of a, a gatekeeping effect, which people hate gatekeepers, but I'm sorry, Certain things, especially certainly aesthetics, require gatekeeping, or else people are never going to be able to engage with any kind of art form uh, productively because they're not going to be able to seek things out. Because how are they supposed to know what even starts being good? You know, and that's where the market used to stand in. Like what people could get money for is what was good, and of course that's bad. That's a bad rubric, and it's distorting. But it also does create the capacity to make large-scale entertainments that are genuinely engaging, and. It's hard to imagine the ab- something in the absence of that. And I, I kind of think there would be sort of a, a, a two-tiered filmmaking the way there is now, 
uh, but instead of around high and low budget, it would be like local. Like I could honestly imagine like movie making becoming a regional production, like a collaborative thing for in like communities or, or, or areas, you know, where people come together to do something and then they all watch it together. Uh, and then like, that's where, and, and then the, the selection process becomes who you actually made the movie with, you know? And it's not just seeing the thing, it's making the thing. Like, the, like local theater, exactly. Uh, but, you know, there's still a limit there to scale and grand, grandiosity that who would want to lose that, you know? And uh, then I would imagine it would have to be some, you'd need some sort of gatekeeping operation to accumulate, uh, coordinate action, really, and, 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 and uh, accumulate the material, the, the, the capital to make it. Not capital, but whatever, the, the human and material resources. Maybe it'd be democratic. Maybe people would like pitch their ideas. People would vote on them. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was the last great movie, someone says. I will say this. I'd say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was the last movie. It was a great movie. Uh, and I think it's... It, but I think you could even say it might be like the last movie. We'll see. But it might mark the end of an entire tape, type of filmmaking, which, considering its subject matter, is just so perfect that I kind of want it to be true even if it's not, because it's so tidy. Someone's asking for sound drops. I think we might be able to get that in the future. If we move to the studio, like I'm hoping we can do soon, I would like to get some sound drops and maybe a sound board of some kind. Get a little zoo crew. Uh, someone says people will put sound drops in. Nothing that anyone, none of you people can do. No, 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 no. I will control them. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Surely you can't be serious allowing, allowing the groundlings. No, no, no. No, just the soundboard for me where I get to press buttons and make funny noises. Ah, GeoGuessr. That's a good idea. I would do a GeoGuessr stream. I'm not very good at that game, but it could be fun. Uh, 
I'm usually not that good at it because my computer was kind of slow and it was it'd take too long to like get to the identifying stuff and I would lose patience. But maybe I could take more seriously. Children of Men's great. One of the best movies of the 21st century for sure. Mallrats or Clerics? I actually say Mallrats. Mallrats is a solid movie all around. It's an actual kind of movie movie. I like Clerks a lot, honestly. I mean, it was formational as a kid, but uh, I think Mallrats was really good. You know, I'm noticing a lot of you people ask me for my takes on things, but you're, you, you, put the, you put it in a very leading way where you clearly want me to confirm your take on something. That's very clever. I see you doing it, though. Don't think I don't see it. Cheeky monkeys. Thoughts on how I'm cool? Uh, I don't smoke. Someone's asking if I've smoked cigarettes. I've never smoked. Come from a family of smokers, hardcore smokers. Never liked it. Sarah, all right, the Sarah Cooper thing. So there was an article today in Mick about, or Mike, I don't know, about how boomers love the Sarah Cooper limpsick videos, but millennials and Zoomers think that it's, it's, it's laundering fascism or something. And I, I didn't read it, but just the fact that it was phrased that way, it just, it was disheartening because it reminded me of how, how, because culture, because politics is so fully fused with popular culture and entertainment, uh, that you can't not like anything now for non-political reasons. Like if if a thing is bad, it has to be politically bad. It can't just suck. And the lips, the, the fucking lip sync lady sucks. It's it's very very bad. Maybe one video is kind of funny, but doing it again and again, it's absolutely baffling. And not since Eric Garland had the fucking uh, game theory tweet get retweeted by a bunch of people fawning over it, have I been more baffled by seeing people, including some people that I have somewhat some kind of respect for, going, this is so funny. And I was just like, what? What? Where does that come from? And the thing is, it's not, it's not because it launders. Oh, it's like, it, it, makes fa it makes Trump's fascism clownish. Like, I'm sorry, if you can't see the clownishness of this situation, or the degree to which clownishness is in, inherent in fascism and can't really be teased out, and also, like, what's the, what's the bad part about this? Like, you see her do the lip-syncing, and you're like, oh, I was going to overthrow capitalism or whatever, but now I'm, I'm, I'm just going to laugh at this video? What, 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 huh? what is the thought here? It's a lady doing a lip-sync of Trump. That's all it is. It's, it, it's lame. What? Why? I don't know anything about Hassan being called by the NSA. Why? What do you want me to say? Please don't yell at me in the chat. Until I have someone reading these, I'm, I'm, I have to like do it myself. And it just, it's it's enervating to be assaulted with in, news and demands for takes in 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 large print over and over again. I mean, I think. If people want, 
obviously all the shit with Antifa and the government like calling it a terrorist organization and, and uh, investigating people on it is fucked up, but god damn it, it would be easier to fight it if fewer people acted like that was a real thing too, and act like Antifa's real. Like that it's an actual group of people and it has leadership and that any of that shit is true. I mean, when you see this shit happen with Antifa, it really clarifies the whole like Power of Nightmares thesis about Al-Qaeda that it was essentially made up by the Bush administration. That it never really existed in any form that people popularly understood it to according to what they saw in the media. And, and, you know, it took a while for people to realize that because they didn't have the context of, you know, Middle Eastern politics and terrorism and stuff to realize, oh, this guy was basically just giving out grants. Like, there was no real uh, internal organization here. It wasn't like Spectre or something. And, like, with Antifa, that's a thing that, I, you know, is, ha- is something people have understanding of and ha- is happens, like, they've seen it. They've seen the, the phenomenon in their lives, and they know it's not real, and yet... Some people, like Al-Qaeda, liked being called real. Like, Al-Qaeda, they, they got off uh, when, when, when Bush turned them into this, this evil organization. And I think there's a similar impulse to be like, yeah, we are this thing. Like, because that's going to raise you up. But then what, look what it's used to do. It's used to justify spurious fucking federal investigations and crackdowns. Jake Paul having his mansion raided. Man, hell of a day. Uh, that was a that was a whole squad. Is he is he starting a militia? I think that would really be cool if he was starting a militia. Someone wants to me to tell them if Bismarck or Metternich were worse. That's a bad word to at use when you're talking about historical figures. That, that, that axis of, of moral judgment applies to them internally, but is relatively uh, irrelevant to my analysis of them from history, from, the, from, the, from decades away. I mean, Bismarck did help unify Germany more directly, and unified Germany was a very bad idea. But at the same time, nobody really knew what it was going to lead to. Nobody knew what all those compound words were doing to their heads. I mean, I guess I just, I, what, what uh, trait are you trying to examine? Like personal morality or immorality? I think that's kind of irrelevant. Like what effects are you trying to determine? And, and then like the question should be built around that. Because I just don't know how to answer like good or bad for bad, like evil people. Honestly, even when they talk about like evil as dictator or whatever, it's like, oh, he killed 20 million people, he killed 30 million people. It's like, well, yeah, but if you'd switch them, it probably would have been different numbers. This is one of the big reasons I've never been down on the idea of the, uh, James Buchanan is the worst president. Because if you'd switched him and Franklin Pierce, they would have had the exact same presidencies, basically. Because they came from the exact same doe-faced, conciliatory, northern democratic tradition. They were upholding the same, at that point, no longer sustainable, but still delusionally held by people at the highest levels of government, democratic uh, northern bargain of giving the South whatever they want to keep, keep the peace. And that's what Buchanan was doing. I mean, we look back on it and people call him a traitor for just giving up all those armories and forts uh, to, to uh, the insurgents. But Pierce would have done it too. That was giving shit to the fucking Southerners to keep them quiet was what northern Democrats did to keep power. So... To me, they're interchangeable. Same thing with all the evil dictators. Like, it's the, the, the resources and the populations that they controlled dictated how many people they killed. Uh... Yeah, and if you want to talk about, like, competent, I mean, Metternich got driven out of, uh, driven out of Vienna by a, by a mob, and Bismarck never had that happen. Why did I say that my fans betrayed me? I don't, I don't think I did. If I did, that might have been a joke. I don't think I ever said that seriously. It'd be a weird thing to say. If I said that, that would disturb me because it means I'm in some sort of a megalomaniacal fugue.
Uh, I think Omar will win. I, I honestly, I don't know. I think people are just kind of flinching so much. Like, I think people thought that uh, Rashida was in more trouble than she probably ever was because they're just, uh, they're used to getting their asses kicked. But the thing about, like, high-profile congressmen is, is they tend to be popular. Unless they get, unless they're popular for, unless they get in trouble for, like, specific stuff that is uh, antithetical to the base, the party base that they have, like, having name recognition is a huge percentage of the battle for any congressman. As soon as you have a certain amount of, of like, uh, real estate and people know you in a, in a, in a district, you, you don't really lose, ever. And uh, getting a high profile early is a good way to have that get, uh, have that process accelerate. And the stuff that people think is, like, awful for Omar or whatever, I don't think actual people in that district give a shit. I think that uh, for a long time, like, the, the, the whole Zionist uh, apparatus had the ability to sort of sneak in their agenda as, like, a parcel of other ideas, that, and their shit kind of just got put in without being considered. And now the people are actually directly challenging it. They have to defend it on the merits and try to provoke conflict uh, on the issues themselves, which basically bail down to allowing Israel to do whatever it wants in its nightmare apartheid state. And Americans don't care enough to, like, do anything to stop us from contributing to that. But they also don't care enough to vote for somebody who's opposed to it. And I think that's what the, um, that's what's being slowly un and horrifyingly understood in the halls of power. Is that, oh shit, like... If, 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 this is, if this is no longer just a situation where there's an exercise minority who love Israel and everyone else kind of doesn't care, uh, if there's even, you know, a residual uh, support for uh, confronting Israel, it's going to be hard to dislodge because how the hell do you argue that as its own discrete issue? Yeah, exactly. Apathy works both ways. Like, apathy is why we're not going to get a change to U.S. policy in Israel, but apathy is also why, if you have a few brave congresspeople who are willing to not toe the line on Israel, it's harder for Israel to, if they don't have anything else uh, that's controversial, pin that on them as a reason for them to be voted out by their own uh, constituents, who, they other, who are otherwise might like and respect them. All right, I'm gonna ask. Uh, gonna log off in a second here. One more question, guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna crack another Lacroix. All right, this is a good question. Best SNL weekend uh, update anchor. The obvious hipster answer is Norm Macdonald, so I'm not even going to say that because it's too odd on the nose. Uh, I'm just going to go with my, uh, my childhood gut with a guy I used to really, really like, and not because he was funny, but because he used to make me feel smart because if I got the reference, I felt like a little good boy because I was a fucking insufferable nerd. Dennis motherfucking Miller. Respect. Respect to the God. P Colin Quinn, gotta be worst. Him and Charles Rocket probably, but oh my God, Colin Quinn was terrible. Just the worst person they could have picked for that job. They clearly like panicked after uh, Norm got fired and just, it's almost like they grabbed him from like drinking like a short dog with fingerless gloves in front of the 30 Rock and put him on, put him on the set. It was kind of amazing. Just muttering his way, stumbling through every joke. It was amazing.
All right, guys. I'm peacing out. See you tomorrow, hopefully.